Yep. Good luck, preacher. <laughs> Parables are not easy to listen to. And I figured, I just, I, I just felt it happen, I lost half of you with weeping and gnashing of teeth. The rest had gone your own way with from those who have nothing, even that will be taken away. I know your sense of justice, and that isn't it. It is in the nature of parables, a little like I'm told my nature, to be irritating. Parables are essentially made-up stories meant to go to the reader here, in this case, into action. Sometimes they trick, sometimes they encourage. Always the point is to move you somewhere. They don't describe reality as much as they do try to shape it through the influence on the hearer. So context is also important, besides knowing what a kind of literature a parable is, also the context of where it's told is important. And these are the last teachings of Jesus in this gospel before Christ's passion in Jerusalem, his death. And there's something in that recognition of the imminence and shortness of life that brings life into perspective doesn't it? It has in some sense been my joy. I, I, I look at it a little differently than some folks, but I've performed three memorial services this week. And through this journey this week, I have been rem reminded myself of the shortness of life and the importance of every moment. Last week, the parable, keep awake. There are, in fact, moments in the life, our lives, that pass us by. In my annual discipline of gratitude, I recognize there are moments in my life I'd like to go back and be more present for. But we can't. This moment today, in the life of this congregation will only happen once. This gathering. This year. As I look forward, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not making a big deal out of it, but somewhere in 2018 will be my 50th birthday. And I'm beginning to recognize in the annual journey I perhaps have more Christmas seasons behind me than ahead. And that brings to us the importance of every moment, of every holiday. We can't have this back. And so it is that Jesus here on the eve of his own passion preaches in parables. Perhaps we might listen. So here, here then a parable. It is as if a rich man or woman, going on a journey, entrusts his wealth with his servants. And to the one, the tycoon gives five talents, and to another two, and to another one, each 
according to his ability, the text says. I warn you, this is, although you might think it, expect it, and you probably have heard it, this is not a stewardship sermon. Wink. The talent, in fact, you know, it has made it into the English language as gifts. This is a talented congregation. It actually comes into the English language through interpretation of this very parable. In medieval English, this talent became a symbol in our lives for the gifts. And so it's even with us today through this very parable, talent. But in an ancient context... A talent was an extraordinary amount of money. It was a measure of silver. And I am told that it was worth about 16 years of labor. So this parable isn't really about money, and if it is, it is about far more than we can ask or imagine. It's a symbol of extraordinary abundance. I also wouldn't get too caught up on the unequal distribution. For in the eyes of each of the three servants, this was such an extraordinary amount as to be an infinite. And the only way, only thing I can be aware of in our lights that's comparable, that's of infinite value, no matter how much you have of it, is grace. In a stunning act of grace, one act of infinite value. Jesus Christ, in this gospel, is about to give his life away so that many may know the depth of God's love for the world. It's one talent, perhaps. Back to the parable. So now the most astonishing fact of all, the master disappears trusting this future to us. That's, that's a little bit of weight on it. That we're left with this, these stunning symbols of grace to the world. The one who receives five must have been a risk-taking broker, I am told, Doubling your money is not an easy thing to do. The same with the second. To their abundance was added extraordinary abundance, infinite upon infinite, grace upon grace. Well done. Enter into the joy of life abundant. But now, attention in the parable and for the bulk of the text is focused on the third. So I'm just going along this train of thought. If a talent here is a symbol for the extraordinary abundance of God, that represents grace, I'd offer that the, the third servant in this text, given as according to his needs, is likely the most righteous of the bunch. He only needs one talent. That would make him the most like us, right? 
spending most of his life on the straight and narrow, the one who worked hard and earned well, the one in church every Sunday for most of his life. Didn't need all that much, but was given that one, that one extraordinary symbol of the grace of God. Ironically, as it turns out in the text, this is the one was actually the, the, the wrong image of God. This is one that is actually afraid of the master. Master, I know that you were harsh and you being powerful gather where you did not labor like all wealthy and powerful have done. I was afraid of you, so I hid this grace that you gave me between me and you, and I buried it in the ground. Here. Now what's really at stake, you think? These two who were given an extraordinary amount of grace and not expecting it. It's just a, and then gave it to the world, doubled its quantity. And then this one, very pious, very holy, afraid, buried it so that he might be accountable on the last day. What's at stake? Why is Jesus telling us this difficult story right before he gives his grace away to the world? One of the earliest Christian writers we have, Irenaeus, Bishop of something, I have forgotten which one, wrote, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. Irenaeus got this from beholding Christ Jesus, a human being fully alive, the glory of God. At great risk, Christ has turned from the comforts of Galilee to bring the message of God's love for the world into the heart of the ancient world, Jerusalem. In his last days, our Lord was fully alive. Are you? Are you fully alive? For those I lost at weeping and gnashing of teeth, there is some comfort because, as Wesley would say when fighting with the Calvinists, how can that, how can that image fit at all with the understanding of God revealed in Jesus Christ? It simply doesn't. Christ, God's love for all people. And it is that risk-taking gospel which is actually itself that cast judgments upon the world, but it was this servant creating his own little hell and imagining this stingy God, powerful, to come in judgment 
after which he shuddered. Is this actually the God of the Bible? By no means. We do have a tendency in our lives, as this servant does, to create our own personal hells. Don't we? We often tend to get the God that we imagine and thus live our lives not out of an astonishing abundance but out of scarcity. At the end of his life, Christ Jesus tells us, challenges us to a risk-taking venture. Now what will you do? Will we preserve the grace we can? Carefully tend our church without taking risks. Enjoy our personal lives this holiday season without peering into the misery of the world. Will we keep this symbol of grace to ourselves? Or will we, in the model of the other servants, risk it all for the sake of God's love for the whole world? As someone has said, the greatest risk of all, it turns out, is to not risk anything. To not change a thing. To not care deeply and profoundly enough to invest in one another. To not give your heart away and thus risk everything. What is at risk, though, is not being fully alive. Wherever you are on the journey, either in its spring, winter, or autumn, are you in this moment fully alive? Fully ready to take this gospel into the world? To those who have a love for the world that God loves, so loves, so to you will be given extraordinary abundance But you too who are taking your grace and preserving it for yourself. Well, I'll leave you to work that out in the parable. So we are here with one talent this Sunday in our hands. What will we do? What will you do? Now, I promise that wasn't a stewardship sermon. Some of you can connect the dots. Let me give an example. I was, uh, it's remarkable that the, the, Maddox, uh, the Maddoxes were 
as it turns out, we discovered at the door a couple of weeks ago, their wedding was performed a number of years ago by my Uncle Earl. I had no idea. When my Uncle Earl had passed before I came into the world, they had a picture of him in their wedding picture. It was pretty remarkable. When my father was young and his brothers were older, they were a very poor family. And uh, one, one Christmas, the three older brothers, Earl being among them, gave of what they could in order that my dad might have this one extraordinary Christmas. And when I was growing up, my dad each year would haul out this nasty old papier-mâché Santa Claus. <laughs> By the time I saw it, it was at least 40 years old. Lost a lot of paint. Like our building over there. Each year, he'd set that out. What it was for him was a symbol that extraordinary grace of God that had been given to him. And in return, he gifted us with an extraordinary generosity each Christmas, but surrounded by that image of that talent he had been given, that one Santa Claus, which was more than just a Santa Claus. Yes, our building needs new bathrooms and needs... <laughs> Definitely needs new bathrooms. Needs a little more space. Needs to look up to the century we're in. But more than that, you might conceive of what you're doing as the setting forth of a talent. A symbol of God's extraordinary generosity. And you are taking risks to make that happen but it's done for the life of the world. And I can think of no other way for you to be church than to give your lives away in this time and place. To each according to his means, to all, extraordinary generosity. And to God alone will be the glory now and forever.